Are you here? <laughs> you hear that positive tone in my voice? That's right. I know you're here. And welcome. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. It's a place to listen to interviews with fascinating people. We've got a great interview from the archives today with Richard Maltby Jr. Now, this was recorded for the radio, so that puts it in the way back category. And it's a pleasure to bring it out and present it to you now. Lyricist Richard Maltby Jr. wrote many successful songs with composer David Shire, as well as other composers like Andrew Lloyd Webber. Now, quite a few of the Maltby and Shire songs were recorded by Barbara Streisand. Oh, yes. He's got quite an interesting story. He's the son of the late famed band leader Richard Maltby Sr. As you'll soon hear, our guest Richard Maltby Jr. is quite an interesting man. We're trying our best to grow our YouTube channel, so if you would subscribe to Paul Leslie's YouTube channel, we'll keep you all apprised of all our interviews. Well, I think it's time, my friend. This is a rare and candid interview with Richard Maltby Jr. Let's listen together. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to welcome our special guest, Richard Maltby Jr. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. Ed Hart, who is Richard Maltby? God, I don't know. <laughs> it, you go into the theater, most people go into the theater because they want to hide. You want to be able to be somebody else and be some other character or create something else. It's mostly because you're kind of afraid you're not enough yourself, so you could be something interesting. And, of course, the shock for anybody in the theater, particularly writers, but, but actors, directors, anybody, that you suddenly discover that the only real currency that you have is yourself. And you so you've gone into this theater to hide from yourself. It doesn't work. And pretty soon, the only thing you've got to work with is who you are. It's one of the shocks that I think everybody goes through when start to actually work in the theater. Who am I? I don't know. I've I'm, I'm the son of a band leader, an orchestrator, brilliant orchestrator, and, and a woman who wanted very much to be a ballerina, but stopped and had decided to have a family instead. Somehow, that was just part of my genetic makeup, transferring whatever it is that's inside of me into some kind of story and kind of songs is just sort of where I live. I don't know if that's an answer, but that's... Uh, hmm. What was the house like growing up, and what kind of music did you hear growing up? It's very interesting. To, my father was a, a brilliant orchestrator. He was a staff musician at ABC and NBC in the 40s. He then became a traveling band leader in the, in the 50s. He had a number of hit records, Band of the Golden Arm and St. Louis, Louis Blues Mambo and some other when the Mambo craze came in. And But his bread and butter job was doing a kind of transcription arrangements. That is to say, there was an organization that, that published a lot of international songs, and in order to get them on the air so that they would be earn money, they would record them. And my father would record 10 songs in, in, in a three-hour recording session. And I used to go into the recording sessions. I used to sit in the orchestra while they would record. I just sat quietly 
he never actually like taught me anything about about what he was doing but i was around i was around it all the time he was quite an artist two and a half minutes of 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 an arrangement it was a little perfect two and a half minute work of art years later when i was doing aimless behavior i was trying to figure out why i suddenly seemed to have a clock inside my head that knew how to structure an evening i don't know why i knew it and it suddenly hit me that it came from my father it came from the sense of structure in my father's orchestrations and it didn't come to me intellectually it came through the skin from just being around all those pieces of music i was always around music my father played all the time and and you know we also listened to recording you know listened to the radio and listened to uh symphonic arrangements and things like that so it just entered and entered me were you always a writer no no i wanted to be a set designer that's really what what i loved about the theater was the was particularly the musicals there was so much scenery and it changed I used to have a, I had a marionette theater in my basement, but in fact, and I'd call the neighbors in to come in and see stage shows all the time. But in fact, all that happened, I didn't care about the marionettes and I didn't, they sort of dangled on the stage. But what I did was I would, <laughs> and they would just be shows in which the scenery would change to, to music. <laughs> so that's what I, that's really what I did. And this lasted right through, my second year in college when it suddenly became vividly clear to me that I couldn't draw and that I was never going to, uh, I was never going to have a career as a, as an artist, visual artist at any rate. But I wanted to do musicals. I did a musical in eighth grade. I did a musical in my senior year at the prep school. I was uh, at Exeter and we wrote an original musical. I went to Yale because it had a theater and I was determined to write musicals there. You know, you can find composers who will write the music. You can even find people who will write the script. But nobody, nobody ever wants to write the lyrics. And so by process of elimination, I moved in to, to write the lyrics. And I wrote the lyrics to all of those shows that I, I did, the two, in, two at Yale. And when I came to New York, it really was quite startling to realize that I was a lyricist. <laughs> because, of course, not all what I intended to be. I don't think I have a natural gift for being a lyricist, actually, if you really want to get down to it. What I am is I'm very hardworking, and I I stay at it until I get language that's that's easy, you know, that's easy and natural. There are some people who just naturally think in lyrics. I'm not one of them. That's really fascinating. So what is that process like for you if it's just about finding the fit for the song? Well... Generally speaking, I mean, I met David Dyer in our freshman year at Yale, and we didn't much like each other, but I wanted to write musicals, and he was a composer, and there wasn't any other composer, and there wasn't anybody else who wanted to write musicals, and he came to Yale to write musicals as well, but as a composer. So we came together and, and worked all the time, and eventually wrote two full shows. In those days, you could write, I mean, they were elaborate, huge productions with an orchestra and everything. Which we seemed to do for out for no money whatsoever. First musical was Cyrano de Bergerac, the most elaborate costumes on the face of the earth. Five huge sets. We just did it. But David is a very interesting, quirky composer. He writes, I think, glorious melodies that are unexpected and that have different, that have odd and, and interesting rhythms in it. Much more interesting than the rhythms I would come up with if I were to write the words first. 
And so what we would do is we would work. If we had a song to do, we would have a title or something like that. We would shape a structure that seemed to kind of come to us. And then he would work on the music. And when the music was really good, I always felt that the lyric was in the music. Once we had the music right, I felt the lyric was already there, even though there wasn't a single word on it. And then I would set out to to write what was already in the music, write the words that would completely correspond to, to the meaning that was in the music. And I think if anything that if anything is a hallmark of the kind of, of the songs that David and I write together, it's that. If you put the music away, you could you would say say those words anyway. You'd say it as a as a dramatic monologue. The goal is to is to make it seem like natural speech, even though it's elaborately rhymed and complex and all sorts of other things. An observation could be made. A lot of the great songwriting duos, there have been a number of them. Initially, they didn't like each other when they first met. Well, <laughs> I've wondered why that is. Well, I can't speak for, you know, other people. <laughs> the thing is that collaboration it has nothing to do with, I mean, it, it, the people who are involved in it. See if I can say that in a more clear way. But the it's not about personalities, really. And I, I, I may have, I, I mean, when David and I met, David was a, a fledgling composer. Over the four years that he was at Yale, he, he learned a great deal about structure. I think I I did a lot of, uh, I taught him a lot because I, and what I taught him was really things that I had only learned by listening to my father. So his work got better and better and better. It was the music, it's the music that eventually I loved. And I think he loved what the way that I put words in on the music to make it come alive. I don't, it was almost irrelevant that we were good friends. We have become incredibly good friends, very close friends, but the love affair is in the music. The love affair is in the, in the writing and in the songs. That has nothing to, you know, that could very well be attached to human beings you don't like. <laughs> hmm. Apparently Gilbert and Sullivan hated each other and as people, but as, as artists, they completely fulfilled each other. What do you think does make for a good songwriting team, a good songwriting collaboration? There are two kinds of collaborations. There's just plain songwriting collaborations like Burt Backrack and, and Hal David, or there's show collaborations, which is a kind of different thing. Show collaborations require a unity of sort of theatrical vision. You have to have a shared sensibility that you know what, what the goal is and you know what good is, and you both agree on what that is. And then you, you both try to solve whatever your dramatic problem arises. David is a is a very good theater dramatist. He wrote you know 150 film scores in his life, and he he certainly understands music as drama. So many times I will come in so sure that something is should go this way, and his reaction will be yes, but maybe it should. Maybe there's this kind of dramatic thing going on. Maybe this is what's really going on. And often I'll drop mine and go with his. The main thing about the collaboration is that it can never be my idea and your idea. I guess that's really what it is. You, uh, you can have a successful collaboration if it isn't about my idea and your idea. If it is, what is the idea that's going to solve this problem? Because then it's not about 
personalities. The people, the collaborations that break down usually break down because somebody says, it has to be my way. This is the way I see it, and it's got to be this way, even though the other person says, I think you're, I think it's not a good idea. We have to persuade each other that something's a good idea. We're talking with lyricist Richard Maltby Jr. What lyricist do you admire the most? Gee, you know, of course, Sondheim, you just put him in a category by himself. But I admire Oscar Hammerstein unbelievably. He's, it's, it's sort of, it's not very chic to admire Oscar Hammerstein because sometimes he can be quite sentimental. But even inside of his sentimentality, this, the brilliant subtlety of, of his choices is just amazing. He, he invented musical theater. So many of the ideas of, that involve using a song to tell, to, to expand upon a character moment in a story, he invented them all. And if you go and realize what he's actually doing when he writes, you know, a simple song like The Sound of Music, the song or, or Getting to Know You or Hello Young Lovers, how much drama he's actually solving in that song, in those songs. It's notable way at the beginning is in Showboat when he wrote Can't Help Loving That Man and made that into a complete dramatic scene, which is not only an attractive musical number, but also the revelation to anyone on the stage that, that Julie has a, a black history, a, a history of the, that she is a uh, mulatto and that she knows she knows this music because that's how she was raised. You know? So he was doing that, and that was written in 1927. It's just extraordinary that he was inventing musical theater way back then. But then, of course, I guess you, if you go deeper, you can find it in Verdi and Puccini as well, but, and Mozart. <laughs> Yeah, that it's a musical dramatization. I admire Steve. I admire Oscar Hammerson. I admire Sheldon Harnick for the fastidiousness of the rhymes and the rhythms. A lot of Alan J. Lerner. And among the younger people, I, I think Lynn Aaron's is verb. I like a lot of Jason Robert Brown's lyrics. And I love Adam Gettle's work. That's good. The age, the age gamut that's out there. You worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber. What was he like to work with? To begin with, Andrew lives in a in a universe that you and I don't in, inhabit. He lives on such a plane. He lives with members of he, his friends or leaders of government, heads of state, members of parliament, businessmen. He has a, he has a definite common touch, and he knows. And I think what what's really kind of thrilling about his career is he wants to he wants to move the hearts of common people sitting in the theater. He love he loves theater. I think that's the thing that I that surprised me most of all. He too had a marionette theater when he was when he was young, and he loves the physical buildings of theaters. He loves the event that goes on in theater. I I, I like Andrew a lot. I mean, he's a complex person, but I, I think he's a I think he can be really brilliant. Interestingly enough, he became a success by him and, and by he and Tim Rice had a perception, which was that book scenes were killing musicals. They were the dreary parts of musicals. And so they invented the musical form that didn't have any book scenes in Joseph and Jesus Christ Superstar and then Evita. And that was a tremendous breakthrough. Also, Cats and Starlight Express 
or that were all songs without they wrote this one you know one song after another and it also changed when he did Phantom of the Opera which he in which he used all of the devices of a non-book of a non non non-book scene structure with a a very structured book story after which he has written book musicals that had book scenes and and he's gotten trapped the way everybody gets trapped in in, in musicals with book scenes what about all of the Barbara Streisand recordings of your songs? How did she come to discover the Maltby and Shire catalog? She appeared in New York in the mid-60s, and she was she was that kook, that odd-looking woman who had this amazing voice. I guess, I'm not quite sure of the chronology. I think she had done, I can get it for you wholesale, in which she was like a minor character, but she had one big comedy number in the second act that was really funny called Miss Marmelstein. And David Shire came to New York because composers can always get work. He came to New York and instantly he was accompanying dance classes and he became assistant musical director on shows and did dance music and things. And in the course of it, he met Peter Daniels, who was Barbara's arranger. And it was clear, I guess it was in the wind that this girl was going to do something. We went down to see her at, at a nightclub called the Bonsoir once, and it was an extraordinary evening. She sat on a stool. She never moved from the stool. She was wearing a long skirt of men's suiting, men's tweed suiting, suit material, and a silk blouse. Later, this became incredibly fashionable, but at that time, it was completely shocking. And she sang these wonderful arrangements. Most of them were the, the basis of her first three albums. And, and, and Peter Daniels was the arranger who who did that. And we went backstage afterwards, and Bonsoir has a tiny little dressing room, a thin, narrow dressing room, at the, at the end of which was a very, very overweight man. And he was her dress designer. He was her designer and came up with these extraordinary clothes. At any rate, we got to know Peter Daniels. David did, really. And and Peter really loved these songs, and he kept putting them in front of Barbara. And so one of the songs from was from Cyrano that David and I had written at Yale in our junior year of autumn. That was in the first recording session she ever did. It didn't come out until the third album, but it was in the first recording session. And she recorded five more songs that, that, that we did, largely because Peter kept putting them in front of her. David was also assistant musical director for uh, Funny Girl, and so that was another opportunity of to, to you know to get the songs in front of her. He knew enough to know that you didn't get anywhere if you said, "I've got a song for you. I think you'll like it." So one day, when they were working together, he just put the piece of music on the on the piano, and and she said, "What's that?" And he said, "It's a, oh, it's just a, a song. I, 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 it's not for you. It's a really it's it's for a man." And she said, "Well, I want I want to hear it." And he said, "No, no, no. It's really no. You, you, you won't. You won't like that." Uh, it, and she said, "Why? Well, you've got to pay it for me." So we're starting here, starting now, which is scarcely a song for a man. But she then then loved it and said, "Oh, I want to do this." There was also a moment which is kind of delicious, which is it was going to be in the recording session. It was going to be in a, a recording session, and she was running through the song, and, and she liked it. I mean, she said it just it gets to a point where I just feel like it needs some you know extra excitement. And David could feel she's not going to do the song. She's not going to do the song. He's got. To, I've got to come up with something. And so he said, "Oh well, maybe it's this." And on the spot, improvised that big 
progression, that big da 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 de 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 to a modulation. It's a half step modulation. It's the biggest build up to it to a half step modulation that you can imagine. But it's completely thrilling and then she and she said, Yes, okay, that's it. So that's how it got recorded. With all of the many songs you've written, is it possible to pick a favorite of yours? It is very hard. I mean the story goes on at the end of the first act of Baby is certainly a song like nothing else. A song I don't remember Christmas from Closer Than Ever is a lyric that nobody has ever written. You know, a lot of the songs that we do are really about subjects that no one's ever written anything about. I, I do like that. Let's see. There are some things in, in <clears throat> let me see. I think some, some of the things in, in Miss Saigon. The song, I'd Give My Life for You in, in Saigon, is, a, I think, a really good lyric. They're all my children. I love them all. I'm very curious about the crossword puzzles. How did you get into that? And how does that fit in with the other things that you do with words? First of all, you need to know that these are not American crossword puzzles. These are the British crossword puzzles. British crossword puzzles don't have definitions. They have clues. They have a sentence that seems to be a sentence, but in fact is a code. That sentence has a definition of an answer and then a description of how to spell it or another indication of what the word is. It has two two indications of the word, one of which is a definition. It's very popular in England and was completely not known at all in the United States. Steve Sondheim, who was a madman about puzzles and games when he first came to New York, loved English puzzles, these English cryptic puzzles. He and Leonard Bernstein used to sit in the back of the theater and do them. So when New York Magazine was founded in the late 60s, I guess, yeah, it would have been the late 60s, Clayton Felker asked him to do a, a puzzle, uh, do one of these cryptic puzzles. So he introduced the cryptic puzzle to the United States, and he did them every week for a year. But that was really daunting and time-consuming. And then he did them every three weeks, alternating with the contest that Marianne Madden did, the New York Magazine contest. And after that, he did that for a couple of years. And then when Company was about to, to go into rehearsal, he figured he had to drop it. So he was going to drop it. And I got very upset because I thought the puzzles wouldn't exist anymore. And so I asked him if he would mind if I took them over. And he said, Shh. Sure. So I met I Pelker, and so I started doing the puzzles instead, which of course defeated the purpose because if, since I had made them up, I knew what they what the answers were when they came out. But Stephen started that, and you know you have to remember that during the 1960s, between Gypsy and and Company, there was funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, and then a lot of a lot of failure for him. Anyone can whistle. Do I hear a waltz? Uh, and and a genuine, a general climate in New York theater that Steve Sondheim was a lyricist and he wanted to be a composer and he was a bad composer. So there was no reason to, he had a lot of time on his hands and he was feeling very blue and these puzzles sort of picked him up. Of course, once company opened, they, he went straight from company to Follies to a little night music and Pacific Overtures and, and sort of a show all the time. So he, he stopped doing the puzzles, but he still did them for me. I would do them and I would send them to him and he would he would vet them. He would catch mistakes. He would suggest improvements and clues and things like that. We had a good time. I think that the reason, 
funnily enough, the people who do puzzles, Steve Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz does does the puzzles that the show Harnick did for a while. Lyric writing is such a tactical use of language. You have to say what you want to say, but the accent has to be on the third beat and the eighth beat. The rhythm has to be exactly such. So you're constantly manipulating language in a very, very technical way. And that's what these puzzles were. They're, they're all about misleading you because of the complexity of the English language, misleading you from, from an answer, from seeing the obvious answer. Very interesting. What is the best thing about being Richard Maltby? <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's kind of a cliche, but I have five wonderful children. Uh, they are all brilliant in, in their way. One is a therapist who is also has a business that he's part of, and, and he has he himself has five children. Another is a real estate mogul, but he's an ex-rock drummer who traveled with rock bands for 10 years is now um, buying and selling office buildings, but he's also sort of got a theater arm as well. He's got projects that are going to end up being theater op projects. And I have a young filmmaker, a choreographer, director, and a singing singer-actress also in my, in my bag of tricks. And they're all just fascinating, complex, startling, wonderful kids. Sondheim, who has said everything, really was right when he said children and art. Those are the two things you that live on after you. Your children and the things that you the thing that you've created. When you create things you, you sort of you don't have a sense of longevity. You just sort of have a sense of doing it right now and, and that's the whole thing. But I now have shows Hayman Haven is thirty three years old. <laughs> Baby is going to be thirty years old next year. I'm doing a revival of Closer Than Ever in New York this year, and and that's almost 20 years old, over 20 years old. So suddenly I'm, I'm confronted with, well, immortality. I, you know, these these things will will probably be out there and performed long after I'm gone, and that's kind of nice. Our special guest has been Richard Maltby Jr. My last question is very open ended. What would you say to the audience listening in? I would say the creation of work for the musical theater is just extraordinarily wonderful. Because it is a vulgar form, because it is about hitting the audience where they live and their stomachs and their solar plexus, it, it's not, it is, it is sometimes intellectual, but it is, it is not basically an intellectual art form, it is a popular art form. And therefore, you don't often see the incredible artistry that goes to making a show that's successful. I love the creation of a story on the stage. I just think it's it's extraordinary when music and narrative come together in the creation of, of, of a story on the stage. It, it surpasses all of the elements that are in it. And that's why people, that's why we love musicals. I would say just avoid the cliche of musicals. Stop thinking of it as something that become almost a cliche that if you love musicals, you're gay. Please. That would never work. And it's never been true. Which doesn't mean that, that a lot of the artists who create musicals are gay. A lot of them are. A lot of them aren't. It's not the thing to focus on. And musicals don't get inside of us through our brains. They get inside of us through our hearts. And, and that's what's thrilling to me. I don't know, why do I have to say to, to, to people out there? 
Just keep loving musicals. Well, I just want to thank you for this interview. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Well, thank you very much, Paul. It was a pleasure. These were very interesting and unexpected questions. I was pleased to have a chance to say some things. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. Bye-bye. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.